Welcome to the Fright Lab. I'm Lucas Yoakum. And with us, as always, is the manager of the Discuss Metal and Horror Art Gallery, Mr. Joseph Wren. What's new tonight, Joe? And welcome to the most metal podcast studio in all of the horror movie museums. All of you gruesome people. Lucas, you made me watch Maniac again. And not the original that is a little less disturbing, in my opinion, than the 2013 remake starring Elijah Wood. So let's go ahead and just knock this this statement out of the way now. Uh, content warning for this episode, because of everything in this movie. Uh, we, as a rule, don't spend a lot of time talking about the really terrible parts of movies, be that... Uh, Sex, violence, or violent sex, um, sex crimes and stuff. We don't want to talk about that stuff. We think it's gross, but sometimes it happens in these movies. This movie's kind of loaded to bear with all of that stuff. So if that's something that you're not okay with, skip this movie. No hard feelings. All right. With that out of the way, I feel better. Cool. Okay. So at the beginning of the Fright Lab as a series, uh, I talked about William Lustig's grim opus, Maniac. And that's something of a divisive film, but it's one that's undoubtedly earned its place in like the greater canon of horror movies. I'm going to assume that if you are this far into the Fright Labs library, you've either heard that first episode, seen the film, or both. And if not, pause this episode and go back to episode one. Meanwhile, we're going to go grab a drink. Oh, oh, okay. You're back. Awesome. So, how's the coffee, dude? Oh, it's great. It's, I mean, I, I always sort of plan on having a cup of coffee while I record. It's a nice touch. So, now that you're up to date on the show, let's talk about the 2013 remake of Maniac, directed by Frank Calfoon. For the sakes of ease, we're just going to call this movie Maniac 2013. That way, there's no real confusion about us referring to Lustig's Maniac, you know, by accident. What do you do exactly? I take pictures of mannequins. I try to bring them to life. Would you like to see my work? I think you're incredibly talented. They may just have found the last true romantic. I don't know about all that. Stop staring. You're missing a movie. I had not been aware that there was a remake to Lustig's Maniac, and it was Tia from His and Hers Horror who had made me aware of this, and thanks again for that, Tia. You know, and it was even better, I found it streaming for free on both Pluto and Crackle. So, you know, you have options to watch this without having to pay for it if you're not really into that, provided you don't mind the ads. Having learned this, I had no choice but to eventually watch this one. 
And since I had recently reached the bottom of the list of movies I was initially going to cover, I needed something different. And let's kind of get this out into the open. Maniac 2013 is a very different film. Not just from Lustig's original, but just sort of overall. Sure, it's a slasher flick, with some interesting character development kind of midway, much like the original Maniac. Uh, it is, in my opinion, a really like good, fun movie. But much like Lustig's original, it's not an easy watch. Maniac 2013 is a brutal, gruesome little joint. And it does not flinch at showing you the shocking acts of murder and the vicissitudes of untreated mental illness. I do have some criticisms of the movie that I'll get to later. But overall, this movie really fills an unusual slot in modern horror cinema. That is to say, the Haunted Hippies idea of film remake as a cover song. Uh, again, for those of you who are unfamiliar, go check out Haunted Hippie on YouTube. She's awesome. Uh, I don't know how to abbreviate film remake as a cover song, and I, I should probably come up with some at some point, like an acronym or something. Anyway, we're not really going to explore the plot of Maniac 2013 at length in this episode. Uh, one of the concepts that hit me really hard while watching this movie was about complicity. The mechanics of this film, as well as the acting and the overall plot, perform this neat magic trick of making you feel a little guilty about what you're seeing. I've seen this sort of thing work in other media, so I'm going to discuss that as well. So follow us into a world of vile, vicious madness. And in the end, I think we will shed some much-needed light on a dark, dark film. Talking about a remake or a reinterpretation of any media is hard without drawing immediate comparisons to its forebearer. So I'm going to try and avoid making too many uh, comparison-contrasting arguments here. Further, I don't want to reiterate our Suspiria and Suspiria episode we released a while back. Thankfully, the plot of this film is pretty easy to explain. Maniac 2013 follows Frank, who engages in the stalking and murder of women throughout Los Angeles. His M.O. During or after the course of his assault, Frank scalps his victims. Afterwards, he returns to his home where he drapes the scalps of his victims onto the head of mannequins. And you might be asking yourself, why does Frank have so many mannequins lying around? See, Frank inherited a mannequin restoration business from his mom, who... Well, Frank had a very complicated and unhealthy relationship with his mom. Does this follow the same setup as the previous film or the original film? I remember they took most of the plot points, but it was overall the idea of make him a little bit younger than he was in an early 80s slasher film. Um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty directly comparable. I will say that this movie, and I'll kind of talk about why, shows a lot more than the original uh, Lustig Joe Spinell maniac. You do end up seeing quite a bit more on screen and that tries to explain Frank's behavior, though, like there's, uh, you know, there's no real explanation for that sort of vicious murder. But you get the you get my point. He it, it does show a little more, and it's interesting to see if nothing else because they are at least trying to flesh it out. So back to the plot. Frank meets an attractive young artist who has an interest in mannequins. This sets into motion this horrifying chain of events leading to Frank's downfall. Fans of slashers who aren't familiar with the source material are likely yawning at this point. It is, in a lot of regards, 
no different than any other plot or action within a lot of the slasher subgenre. So, what's the difference? To start, it was directed by Frank Calfoun, who has been involved in the new French extremity movement more or less from its beginning. Moreover, it was written by Gregory Lavasseur and Alexandra Aja. Now, they were the ones responsible for High Tension, a.k.a. Switchblade Romance, and it's I consider that movie one of the few French New Wave uh, extremity movies that I can really get into. So then there's the cast of this film. It's loaded to the brim with a lot of working actors, some familiar, some not, but it stars, of all people, Elijah Wood. Now, I'm a pretty big Elijah Wood fan, and I have to give him a lot of credit for taking this role. Elijah Wood is no Joe Spinell, physically or, or otherwise. You know, he might even be the like polar opposite of the original Joe Spinell, but he does unhinged and violent really, really well. I'd worried that he couldn't pull it off, but man, he really went there in a big way. He was fully committed to this role and to the approach taken of the cinematography. And let's talk about that now. Uh, one of the most effective and noteworthy parts of Maniac 2013 is that the film is almost entirely shot from a first-person perspective. That's right. It's an FPS horror movie. I've only heard of a few films that have tried the same trick. Uh, there's an action movie I've never seen called Hardcore Henry. Uh, there is a, another horror movie called Enter the Void that's uh, it's interesting, I guess. I, I didn't really enjoy it. Uh, there are some scenes from like the original Terminator and being John Malkovich. They've kind of played in that arena. But at the worst points of those films, you don't see the sort of repugnant violence that you end up seeing in Maniac 2013. I think we brought up Hardcore Henry on the previous Maniac episode. That's the best example I have of show the audience 100% of the protagonist's perspective. In the case of this film, I think he's the antagonist by design, but... The idea is to get the audience into the first-person perspective to put the action and what is happening in their eyes. And that's where you get your buy-in. That's a compromise or an acceptable compromise to the tropes of the found footage genre. But I think this one takes it a little bit further. You start talking about Elijah Wood in the leading role. I think this film is challenging the idea of people who are antagonistic of what they perceive to be weak people. Uh, maybe. I, I think there is maybe an element of that because, you know, again, compared to Joe Spinell, who's this hulking big dude, compared to, compared to Spinell, Elijah Wood's this tiny guy. Like, he's not a very big guy. I mean, hey, we've all seen Lord of the Rings. He played a hobbit for a reason, right? Let's be honest. There are many of us who watch this film thinking, Frodo's killing people? <laughs> yeah, and I I kind of feel bad for Elijah Wood, because for a guy who has acting chops like his, I don't think he's ever going to outlive Lord of the Rings. And to be fair, if you have to be known for the Lord of the Rings films, that's not such a bad thing. They're, they're still fun movies. They're still entertaining. They still hold up. 
I and you know, I'm pretty sure Elijah would if you know we didn't like his role in this, he would be at home drying his tears with stacks of hundred dollar bills that are left over <laughs> from the royalties, you know? I just stack this one next to Sin City and say, Yes, he's a <laughs> hobbit. And yes, we all make fun of some of the tropes in those films, but no, he he can be scary. Oh, and yeah. he's earned that with me. Oh, I just yeah. didn't want to watch him become Wild Bill from Silence of the Lambs. Well, you know, uh, I cracked a joke while writing my notes out for this movie. Uh, this is an exact quote from my notes. I need to create a scale of revulsion for this show. A scale of like, you know, one to ten. One being zero revulsion to ten being the golden glove. So what's a five then? Like Texas Chainsaw, I think. Later on in my notes, I wrote, yep. This movie makes me feel icky. It's a solid eight on the revulsion scale, I think. I don't know that I actually really need a revulsion scale in this uh, show, but I found myself genuinely disgusted by most of the violence in this movie. It's not as gory as a lot of movies that you're going to find. I, it may not be as gory as some movies I've watched for this show. And it's not as creative as some of the more absurd entries into like the torture porn quasi subgenre. But there is something so stark, so short about the violence. It almost feels real, even in the moments when like special effects are being used and are very obvious. Which brings me to what I was referring to at the beginning of this episode. One of the more potent things about Maniac 2013, as well as Lustig's Maniac original, uh, is that it makes you feel like you're part of the action. A combination of really inspired acting writing and highly ambitious camera work puts you into the action with Frank. And as such, you're sort of guilty in a way. You get to have this tiny, tiny taste of murderous complicity in some really genuinely awful violence. And that's a thing that I am hoping none of our audience has done in real life, especially because I'd rather not testify at any of your trials, okay? So, Lustig's original manages to unsettle by being gritty and direct. The feel of New York in the 70s and the 80s just washes over you. And because you follow Spinell's Frank almost exclusively, well, you start to feel for Frank just a little. The decision to slow down in the middle of the plot and let you see Frank interacting in the world and not simply stuck in his like nightmarish home it allows you a tiny amount of sympathy for this big lug. Whether or not, you know, Frank deserves any sympathy, you know, that's that's maybe another story. Instead, Maniac 2013 doubles down. It doesn't just stay with Frank. It is Frank. By being literally in Frank's head, you are now part of his terrible behavior. It's an absolutely audacious move when you get down to it, and it shouldn't have worked. It should have been so dumb and so pretentious it would make Pascal Logier blush. And yet, this movie is a near-perfect combination of factors. Every so often, you find a movie that just makes you say, God, how'd they do that? There's a number of sequences in this movie that have me genuinely confused as to how they pulled it off. It's not like the most technologically advanced film ever made. It has a similar effect to the like suspended camera techniques that were used in Angst. It's just 
a really intense choice, and I'm still kind of getting my head around how they made this movie, you know? A lot of mirrors, a lot of planned camera movements. I think time spent in theater has taught me you can do a lot with what the audience cannot see. At the end of the day, the set is just that. It's a set. It's some plywood with some paint, and maybe we hang some shelves and some pictures to make you believe that it's a real room. But there is nothing preventing any of the actors from just stepping outside the door, running all the way around the building, coming in the back door, and then, how did they do that so fast? There's no way they could have shifted the perspective in this way. And if you really get down to it, some of the shots in this film are all the actors, not just Elijah Wood, but there's a lot of walking behind the cameraman and coming right back into it with the same emotion that adds to the discomfort because now you realize they're participating in this as well. And that makes me as an audience member extremely uncomfortable because I want to turn it off. You're supposed to feel revulsion. You're not supposed to enjoy what you're seeing and you're not supposed to be okay with continuing to be part of that perspective. Yeah, I I think that's probably the case, right? I was reading somewhere that there was a lot of incidents in this film that they just had to like hand the camera to Elijah Wood and have him hold it for just a second while they were doing something. Because when you're doing this kind of movie, it requires absolute cooperation. You know, it's like watching an acrobatics routine. You sit there as a non-acrobat going, how the the fuck do they pull this off? But the reality is it's practiced and practiced and practiced. I think it's just a little different because at no point in any acrobatic routine I've ever seen, does anyone get stabbed in the mouth? You know, it's just, call me crazy. Maybe I've just been going to the wrong acrobat shows, you know? (laughs) What has this show done to me? What has this show made me do? (laughs) It's made you sound amazing while you talk about these wonderful horror films that just make us all so happy. Amazing and humble. It makes me sound amazing and humble. I want to wind back for a few minutes to my point about complicity with this movie. We are asked to deal with the reality of the terrible violence Frank releases onto the world, but we're not offered any sort of distance from it. We're complicit in his crimes in that way, but it's not really the full story, right? If we were not shown the gritty uh, home life of both this iteration of Frank as well as the original, we could not have that sort of complicity. Complicity ultimately requires intimacy and maybe on some small level, sympathy. For me, words like intimacy and sympathy as it relates to this sort of character feels like I'm sucking on an old penny. It's a gross feeling, isn't it? The thought that maybe on some level, either iteration of Frank Zito is somehow an understandable character is just, ugh. We all want to believe that we're different from the monsters of cinema and of and of true crime. And maybe on some level we need to feel completely different from the Ted Bundys and Frank Zitos of the world. Deep down, we all know that there's still a common bond, maybe just a shred of humanity that we share with all of these people. And I, I think maybe that's 
the most horrifying thing about this whole fucking movie. I was going to wait till later, but did you enjoy Serum? <sighs> no. No, I did not. Um, so You're not supposed to. It's not supposed to make you feel anything. <laughs> so when, when we recorded uh, our episode on It Follows, uh, Joe handed me a movie to watch called Serum, and... He describes it as the worst film ever made. And I don't I don't think it's the worst film ever made. Is it a good movie? No. Uh, is it competently directed? Uh, not especially. Um, was it enjoyable? Uh, after a couple beers, I didn't mind it so much. Um, it's a classic case of, uh, of hate the sin, love the sinner. Like, I admire the fact that it was a, a kind of small, scrappy crew of people who just wanted to make a horror movie. And they were clearly having some fun, even if the movie's not great. I think uh, one person in the special comment or the uh, the director's commentary makes a point saying like, oh, yeah, you can tell that this is not an expensive movie. And I kind of like that they own it. But taking ownership of your crap doesn't make it any better. <laughs> so um, Serum was a terrible fucking movie. And um, you can watch it. I don't. Don't. Don't watch it. Don't watch it. I bring it up because we talked about the room on that episode and you mentioned the disaster artist and i'm coming through for you i am presently listening to that book and i'm fascinated by this idea of someone who is brought in to an eccentric person's circle as weird as it sounds to hear these stories and you say to yourself that's weird. Why did you put up with it? At the end of the day, everybody's weird in their own way. And we become fascinated with people that invite others in because they're just looking for acceptance. And as much as you think the behavior is weird, we all stand around the house talking to ourselves sometimes. Sometimes we sing when no one else is around and we don't want to be heard. Sometimes we have conversations with mannequins. At least that's what this movie is trying to tell me. My point is I remember being more disturbed thinking about what the author is not able to see while he's telling those stories. While we're listening to someone who experienced the eccentric personality of Tommy Wiseau interpersonally Imagine if the film was not Maniac 2013. It was Wiseau 2013. And behind the scenes, he's just as disturbed. Like, is he in the mirror talking to himself going, I'm going to make it. I'm going to convince you. I'm going to, I'm going to get there. And then he's just desperately dyeing his hair. And I, I, this is something I have to do. This film just puts you in front of, you said it earlier, mental illness, someone who is clearly disturbed, who has issues that have not been dealt with, and is lashing out and becoming violent with other people. And as the audience, you don't want to see that. Because we all accept that weird guy, or gal, it's not a guy-gal thing, for the weird shit they do, eventually. But we don't necessarily want to sit in the room and watch them do it. You know, uh, fans of the last podcast on the left have no doubt heard the the hosts say this this statement, and it's something I do really wholly agree with: is that your mental health is not your fault, but it is your responsibility. And you know, I think 
I, I, I would love to take credit for that. I really would. But it is absolutely true. And I find that things like normal, quote unquote, in, in a mental health sense of the word are kind of, it's kind of a statistical anomaly. Actually, it kind of mostly doesn't exist. Normal is just an agreed upon like set of circumstances. Most people you meet have something going on beneath the surface. Could be big, could be small. Most people, as it turns out, are not scalping their neighbors and putting their scalps under the heads of mannequins. <laughs> Thankfully, so with that in mind, you know, on one hand, again, you you end up kind of sympathizing with Frank in this movie, even though you really don't want to. But I kind of think that's necessary for the horror to work. And for a movie at the end of the day to be a, a fright lab joint, so to speak, uh, I think people need to be able to walk away from a movie not only talking about, oh, did you see when he did blah, blah, blah? That was really fucking gruesome. I think you also need to be able to walk away from it and say, oh, hey, there's a deeper subject here that we could be scratching at the surface at. Or it's just a movie and I get to go home now and remember this movie I watched. Yeah, th there's that. Um, I, I tend to not like talking about those movies quite as much, but what do you do, right? So on a level of like pure film critique, I have to say that while I like Elijah Wood as Frank, I think he does kind of lack the like gravitas and believability of a guy like Joe Spinell. I know that a lot of critics I have uh, heard mention this movie say that they just can't take Elijah Wood as a killer seriously. Uh, the hosts of the Psychoanalysis podcast were especially emphatic about this point, and I strongly uh, recommend their episode on Lustig's Maniac as a counterpoint to my original episode. I think it's in the show notes. Uh, I think that also kind of misses the point of Maniac 2013, though. It's perhaps, in my opinion, a bit too obvious to just say, well, they're different films, so of course they aren't comparable. That's true enough, but it doesn't get to the heart of the matter, I don't think. Maniac 2013 is not a particularly thoughtful character study uh, that offers you a lot of sympathy for, you know, Wood, uh, Elijah Wood as Frank. It's entirely closer, you know, first-person shooter elements aside, to other pieces of new French extremity. And that's an entirely reasonable thing to consider, uh, given that Alexandra Aja co-wrote the script. Uh, I hesitate to want to compare it to, like, Aja's high tension just because of different plot and settings and all of that. But, yeah, I, again, you know, when you're dealing with this movie, it, it's it's hard to feel that sympathy, uh, maybe a little bit because it is so repulsive. But it is also, at the end of the day, it is it is a very over-the-top slasher movie. So not as over-the-top as, you know, Friday the 13th's uh, latter-day iterations. <laughs> but it... it there is a part of me whenever I watch these movies that I think real serial killers are not this fucking slick. You can't just decapitate someone in a parking lot and have no one notice. Whether it's in his head or not, I do think American Psycho is one of the best depictions of what a real maniac would be. Yes, he does those things, but then he has to figure out how to deal with it. Oh, well, sure. I mean, most people don't just have access to, like, a pig farm or whatever. So, you know, that tracks. Uh, before I forget about it, though, I do want to talk about something about this film that I absolutely adored. Um, the score of this film. Uh, it's been created by a French electronic artist called Rob, R-O-B. Uh, 
it has this sort of like synth wave feel and it's just deeply moody and interesting. Uh, I listen to a lot of this sort of music on my own and I was pleasantly surprised to find it streaming uh, in most places. So uh, I will link to that in the show notes and I think you'll really enjoy it. I, I, I've realized recently that a lot of the movies we've talked about have weird synth scores and I, I want to say that that's not intentional on my behalf. I think it's just I tend to like those movies a lot and that's one, <laughs> one thing. It's trendy now. It, Just let it be. You know, it is, but at the same time, I think it's cool because uh, stuff like Rob and uh, Disasterpiece, who did uh, uh, It Follows score... They're not quite like they don't sound like they were just some dude jamming on a Casio keyboard, but they are undeniably synthetic. And I, I, I just like that. Maniac 2013 is first and primarily an ugly slasher flick. And sure, Lustig's film is something of a proto slasher, I suppose. But Lustig and Joe Spinell seemed more interested in getting to the heart of a killer. Maniac 2013 makes an effort at explaining a little of Frank's reasonings, I guess we could call them that. But I think it does fall a little flat. You know, we are forced to be complicit with Woods Frank, and therefore we get a certain amount of that awful intimacy. And where that lands us, uh, it may be the worst kind of intimacy, right? Even with Woods Frank being maybe a touch more charming and conventionally attractive than Joe Spinell, he's a little harder to relate to. And I find that to be somehow all the more awful. Uh, Writing Shotgun, no pun intended, with uh, Frank in Lustig's original is rough enough. But being in the driver's seat with Elijah Wood's Frank can almost be a bridge too far. Uh, This movie, suffice it to say, is not a real crowd pleaser. Rotten Tomatoes has the film listed with a critical rating of 53% and a fan rating of only 44% at the time of this writing. Critical reviews could be a little less scathing, maybe. For instance, Violent Luca over at Film Comment says, quote, It's a nasty piece of work, and it goes out of its way to confirm the worst of humanity, and the POV-only camera work, devoted to seeing through the killer's eyes, is stomach-churning. They go on. Perhaps the mannequin metaphor is best. Though it's dressed to the nines, Maniac is ultimately just a piece of plastic. David Lewis at the San Francisco Chronicle titled their review of the film Torture Porn at Its Worst. And Todd Gilchrist of the Daily Dead says, You know what, actually, Joe, why don't you take uh, Todd Gilchrist's quote here? Oddly, the one thing this point-of-view portal of psychosis lacks most is a point of view, which is why Maniac functions as a look in the wrong direction at slasher movie conventions, instead of offering a genuinely unique perspective, both literal and thematic, on the genre. Um, a quick note about the ending of Maniac 2013. Uh, I'm not going to spoil the ending to Maniac 2013, or for that matter, Lustig's original. I will say that it is an extremely over-the-top thing. And if you're the sort of person who won't watch a remake of a movie because you're like, well, I already know how the movie ends, I assure you, if you've seen Lustig's original, you're already used to extremely weird endings. The ending to 2013's uh, Maniac is so, so much weirder than the original. And I, I feel strange saying that because it's one of my favorite weird endings. 
But the ending of Maniac 2013 is so much more extreme and so much more off the wall. It really is kind of almost the logical conclusion to a movie about the skinny, underweight, kind of nerdy, violent guy. It's the only ending that kind of makes sense, even though it's utterly fucking insane. And the journey to get there is a lot darker than what the ending gives you if the point of the film is the ending. If the punchline is the reason I'm watching this film, then the rest of it is absurd, over the top, and doesn't need to be as horrifying as it is. Nonetheless. (laughs) At its worst, true crime and horror media will have you feeling that there's a Frank Zito on every street corner. But that doesn't seem to be the case. Most information I can find Uh, with a minor amount of research, really, says that there may be up to 50 serial killers active in the U.S. at every point. Personally, I find that to be maybe a few too many. But I also think that we're culturally unable to accurately gauge what crime looks like these days. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, there was a minor uptick in crime between the years of 2020 and 2021. But the reasons for that uptick in crime is incredibly difficult to parse at this point. Crime, as a rule, has no simple explanations, but it's worth noting that up until recently, really up till the pandemic of 2020, the entire world, but America specifically, had seen actually a fairly precipitous decline in a lot of serial killer crime. And yes, 50 serial killers in the United States at any given point seems like a just absolutely shocking number, but it's worth noting that that's in a nation of nearly 330 million people. I mean... That's not even a statistical blip. That's not even... That tells me that you haven't caught the ones that you don't know about yet because the population goes up and the people who are the serial killers have not yet been caught. Well... So it's a ratio of a downtick more so than an actual drop, I think. Well, maybe. But one thing is clear on this subject. The overwhelming majority of listeners to the show are never going to be hurt by serial killers. That statement aside, Joe. Statistically, it's just not likely to happen. And if it will help you feel at all better, I am going to link some info in the show notes about serial murder from the FBI and from the Brennan Center. I strongly encourage everyone check that out because I think we as a country have a bad understanding of how violence actually works in in a statistical criminal sense. So good information, FBI and Brennan Center. Do check that out. In the end, I personally enjoyed Maniac 2013, but maybe sort of in spite of myself. It shouldn't appeal to me, really, but I really enjoyed the first-person shooter element of the movie. It's at least an interesting wrinkle in the whole slasher format, one that I don't think I've seen really done before. The violence is pretty awful, and it might turn off a lot of people. Frankly, it made me pretty uncomfortable in a couple of places, too. But I mostly liked the performances of the cast, and like I said, the score was really something special. Had this film existed in the early 2000s, I think it would have played in the background of many of the edgier Halloween parties I attended. You know, you could put on like Skinny Puppy or Atari Teenage Riot or any number of electronic artists and over it and just have it in the background. But I also think that the movie has the potential for like a long-term cult fandom. It might never reach the level of Lustig's original in terms of influence or impact, but if you want something ugly and violent in your horror rotation, I don't know, maybe give this one a try. 
You know, I've said the phrase Lustig's Original a lot in this episode, Joe. I'm starting to think Lustig's Original would be a good name for, like, Irish whiskey or something. What would the remake be then? Oh, man. Um, maybe a grappa? Or maybe, um, I don't want it to be like a sparkling white. I like sparkling white wines. I don't want, I don't want that to be the case. Maybe something simple like the original is just an American lager and the remake is like craft beer snob, <laughs> nose turned up. I can really taste the hops in this. You know, you're you're talking to a craft beer snob right now, right? Like, I've got plenty of Budweiser in the fridge if you're thirsty. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> so we need to leave this here for now. I know I will definitely rewatch this film at some point. And as a final aside... I have to admit that this movie has made me sort of reconsider my essential ban on remakes of films. I still think most of the field of like remakes and adaptations are just like cash grabs. But once in a while, a really artful or thoughtful reiteration occurs. Perhaps I'm in the wrong for that previous blanket remake ban. Then again, I sat through the 2000s remake of House of Wax, as well as the remake of The Hills Have Eyes and its sequel, only veterans of the early 2000s horror movie wars will understand the awful things I have seen. I didn't have anything bad to say about the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I thought it was a significantly different film from the original as far as making Leatherface just a serial killer and the family being a serial killer, but it not being that found footage thing. Then you watch Texas Chainsaw 2 and... The groundwork is laid for <laughs> what a really great campy Leatherface outing should be, and I never need the remake again. But you need to give remakes a try every now and then. It's not always a cash grab, but God, it always feels like it is. Yeah. Like you could have written something original. Instead, you just said, let's make that movie again. <laughs> so that begs our most important question, right? What do you think? Is Maniac 2013 worthy of your consideration, or is it just a shameless cash-in? Is Elijah Wood a convincing horror actor? And are there any other soundtracks similar to this that we should be checking out? You need to let us know, and you can do that by emailing us at thefrightlabpodcast at gmail.com. We can also be found on Twitter at fright underscore lab underscore pod, provided that Twitter hasn't blown away like the ashes of last night's funeral pyre. Um... Please check out our show notes. Uh, take, take a look at our sources. As always, if you're a musician creating dark ambient or horror-adjacent rock and punk, we want to hear your work. We are interested in shouting out your music and uh, maybe playing your music on our show. Most of you know that Mr. Joseph Wren is something of a podcast impresario, but for those not hip to this knowledge, Joe, where can our listeners find your work? If you want to hear all of the heavy metal podcasts that we are creating at discussmetal.com. I encourage you to check that out. The frightlabpodcast.com is something I'm working on now. Surprise, Lucas, don't worry. I'm not launching anything without asking you your opinion. <laughs> but I feel like we go to places on the internet to take part in things we enjoy and conversations and subjects that we are really focused on in our day-to-day -day lives. And since Lucas is the general horror expert in the room and is claiming to be the craft beer expert in the room, <laughs> I feel like we need to hear from you all. Where do you want us to build this community, build this conversation? I like the word conversation better. So come to DiscussMetal.com. We have all the heavy metal podcasts. We talk about your favorite bands, my favorite bands. We talk about heavy metal subjects. 
But what I really want you to do first, right now, wherever you're listening to the Fright Lab, give us a five-star review. Give us a thumbs up. Your player of choice. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Play it for your awesome uncle that gave you that record when you were 13 and that changed your entire perspective. Let them know about this show. And you heard Lucas say it. The Fright Lab Podcast at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. And if there's a film that you want us to sit down and painstakingly watch and record a commentary or record an episode about, we want to hear about that. I made Lucas watch Serum because he volunteered. <laughs> it's not going to be an episode. And if you're still interested, uh, we are still on the Letterboxd app. You can find us at Fright Lab Pod, all one word. The Fright Lab the podcast is written and researched by me, Lucas Yoakum, and it is co-hosted, engineered, and produced by Mr. Joseph Wren. We appreciate every single listener we have, and we will talk to you again soon. 